Friends, if you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2 this evening. We're studying uh, our way through this book. Tonight we're going to look at verses 1 through 7. Last week we looked at the first five verses and we'll be referencing that as it builds. What has God done for every Christian? He has given them new life. He has united them to Jesus. And he has determined to make you a trophy of his grace. We see that this evening in Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 through 7. Let me invite you to consider this passage this evening. What has God done for you, dear Christian friends? And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him, In the heavenly places, in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us. In Christ Jesus. Amen. This is God's word. The grass withers, the flowers fade because the breath of the Lord blows on them. The grass withers and the flowers fade. But the word of God stands forever. Let's look to him in prayer. Our Lord and our God, we pray that you would come and meet with us this evening in your word, that you would teach us your word, that you would enlighten our eyes to behold wonderful things in your word. We pray that you would strengthen our faith by it. We pray that you would convert us We pray that you would grab hold of us, you would show us ourselves and our need of Jesus, exalt him among us, for we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. What did God do for his people? What has God done for Christians? You know, one of the most famous Christians there's been is is the writer of Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. That's, that's John Newton. You know the story of John Newton? It's hard to imagine uh, too many greater falls from such great heights. Uh, you know, we witnessed, uh, some of us did on the internet, this guy who leapt 24 miles uh, down to the earth and parachuted and landed safely. I mean, a, a, a lo- the longest free fall, I think. Um, from the highest place there's ever been. But what a greater fall 
Adam experienced in the garden when he turned his back on the Lord and Ephesians 2, 1 to 3 became true of him. John Newton experienced a taste of that. He, he was raised by uh, a mother who loved him and loved the Lord. And in his earliest days, she taught him the scriptures. She taught him to memorize the Bible. He knew, for some of you who know the Westminster Shorter Catechism, it's a, a catechism is a manner of instruction view question uh, via question and answers okay the famous question what is the chief end of man man's chief end is to glorify god and to enjoy him forever that's a catechism it's said that his mom taught him the catechism so, so that by the age of seven he had not only memorized the shorter catechism but he knew all the scripture proofs that taught the catechism that proved it she died however The father remarried. That was the end of Newton's formal education. He went off to sea with his dad at the age of 11 because his dad was uh, the captain of a ship. So he grew up in a very rough place on a sailing ship. He grew up very quickly. By the age of 19, he was forced himself to serve on a British man of war ship, a battleship, as as a, a late teenager. And he describes how he then aimed to desert and he left it wasn't that uncommon but he was caught he was flogged disappointing to his father and he was um, made uh, to be one of those who had to serve on a slave ship and he so he went off on a slave ship and he went to Africa and and he uh, in Africa became a slave himself at one point and he was so mistreated by the mistress of the slave owner that he, he found himself crawling out in the dark of midnight to dig out roots and eat them raw, right out of the dirt, just to have food to live. He eventually escaped and became uh, a slave ship captain. Uh, but in the midst of all of this, he had lived a very rough life among very rough people, and he became a very profane man. He says he astonished other sailors with the foulness of his own mouth. Uh, and while he was in Africa and other places, he lived, a, lived in fornication. He just lived a very uh, debauched life until the ship was sinking one time. And he had gotten so drunk, they had chained him in the bowels of the ship. And then, uh, then because they thought the ship was going to flounder, they... they um, unchained him and he tried to go up the ladder to get out and a wave pushed him back in and the next guy went up and got thrown overboard and died and the Lord spared him his life and it was at that point he began he says to pray and he said uh, he prayed for the first time in years and they had begun to bail water at three in the morning until noon and it wasn't working and, and he prayed Lord if, if this will not do the Lord have mercy on us and he began to call out for mercy Well, anyway, he was converted to faith in Christ. He came to believe in Jesus. And then he, the Lord called him to be a pastor. And uh, at the end of his life, uh, it was written on his gravestone, these words, John Newton, cleric, once an infidel and libertine, a servant of slaves in Africa, was by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Preserved, restored, and pardoned. 
and appointed to preach the faith that he had long labored to destroy. He had fallen from a great upbringing, from a great height, and he had become, as described in Acts chapter Ephesians 2, the person who followed the course of the world, did what his neighbors did, followed after the prince of darkness, though he didn't know he was, and followed after his own passions and lust and did what he wanted to do. And God, it says, in grace rescued him. This is what God does for his people. And I want to highlight three things we learn from this passage about what God's grace does. In the first place, the first lesson I want to highlight is this. You cannot live for God until you get life from God. And you can't get this life for yourself. But Paul says, as for you, what were you? Ephesians 2, 1 to 3, you were dead You were disobedient and you were in danger under the wrath of God. That is what you were. You were dead in your sins. You walked after the world, the flesh, and the devil. And you were, he says, under the wrath. You were by nature under the wrath of God. And we talked about all those things last week. So we're not going to look at those at length here. But consider how far, he says, you had fallen when God rescued you. You couldn't restore yourself. It's impossible to change yourself. Uh, Jeremiah the prophet said it this way in Jeremiah 13. Can the Ethiopian change his skin? Or the leopard change his spots? No. Then also you can do good who are accustomed to do evil. You who are accustomed to walk in this way. You cannot. You cannot turn around on your own and begin to do the good. Dead People can't bring themselves to life. The enslaved can't release themselves from bondage into freedom. The condemned can't rescue themselves to safety. God has to do that for us. And that is what Paul says he did. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved you, what did he do? He made you alive. Uh, We don't even... In our dead condition, we don't even see the kingdom of God until he gives us life. There's that wonderful story of Nicodemus in, in John chapter 3 who uh, comes uh, to Jesus knowing that he's a rabbi and a teacher. And he comes and he speaks to him at night and he, he says, you know, teacher, you know, tell me about things, teach me. And Jesus says to him, unless you are born from above, unless you are born anew, you can't even see The kingdom of God. John chapter 3. You don't need to have eyes to see it. What God has to do, what Jesus has to do, is what he did at the tomb of Lazarus. When his friend Lazarus was dead and buried in the tomb, he had to say, Lazarus, come forth and call him out of death and into life, which is what happened. Just as he did that for Lazarus physically, he has to do that for us spiritually. Because this is our condition, friends. Dead, disobedient. And in danger of wrath. We weren't swimming in an ocean of sin. And Jesus pulled near in a lifeboat. And said come swim over. And climb into the boat. And I'll take you the rest of the way. He didn't do that. You weren't even drowning in the ocean. And Jesus pulled near to you. And he threw a life preserver at you. And he said grab hold of it. And I'll drag you to the boat. And I'll lift you into the boat. No friends. You. 
You weren't swimming and you weren't drowning. You were dead at the bottom of the ocean. Your lungs were full of water. There was no heartbeat. There were no brain waves. And what did Jesus do? He came to you at the bottom of the, of the ocean in a rescue mission. And he pumped out of your lungs the seawater. And he breathed into your lungs the breath of life. And you woke up. And you looked at him and said, I can't swim. And he said, that's not a problem at all. I'll take you all the way safely to shore. Do you understand? You couldn't save yourself. And he had already begun to save you when you had the first eye to see it. And the voice to speak it. Because he gave you life. And why did he do it? Apostle Paul says, because God is rich in mercy. And because of the love with which he loved you. He graciously, generously, as a gift, did it. When we get to heaven, you might ask people, why are you here in heaven? Not a one will say to you, I was smarter than so and so. Not a one will say to you, I was a really good prayer. I was studious as a student of the Bible. I worshipped faithfully Sunday by Sunday and on my own privately every day of the week. Not a one will say that to you, friends. Not a one will say to you, I was more sincere than those other fake Christians out there. Not a one will say it, but they will all look at you and they will say, why? Why am I here? Because God is rich in mercy. And because of the great love with which he loved me, even when I was dead in my sins, he made me alive. He rescued me. That's what you'll say. You can't live for God until you get this new life from God. Some of you don't believe me there. I'm saying to you that, that, dear Christian friend, you have become as different from a butterfly as a butterfly is from a caterpillar. A caterpillar couldn't fly. And you were given wings and now you're new. You're different. But some of us are saying, uh, look, It can't be. What do you mean we can't live for God until we get new life from God? All kinds of people all over the world claim to live for God, follow God, however they conceive him to be. They they read their literature. They attend their public worship services. They do good morally on account of their God. What do you mean people don't live for God until they get life from God? Well, I want you to think of it this way. If you don't have new life from God, everything you do is ultimately done for yourself and not for God. You try to do good to gain heaven. You try to do good to escape wrath and hell. You try to do good because you know there's something wrong with you and you're trying to fix yourself. Or you know there's something wrong with the world and you're trying to fix the world. But at the end of the day, what you've just said is you're really doing all of that for yourself and not for God. But once you've been given new life with the freedom from wrath, the promise of heaven, grace as a gift, now you're free to live for God's glory and not for your own. 
You won't do that until God gives you new life and you are absolutely dependent upon him to give you that life. This is, this is really helpful, though, to recognize that this is the way it is. Because sin and evil abound, we shouldn't be surprised by that, even when we find it in ourselves. It's absolutely okay to admit that you're not a very good Christian. Of course you aren't a very good Christian. Look where Paul says you started. Dead, enslaved to your passions, body and mind, under wrath. And we all lived like this. Paul isn't saying that all of us were as bad as we possibly could have been. I realize you didn't go out and do all that was in your heart to do. But when you're dead, you can't be any more dead. And when you're under... Uh, And when you're walking in disobedience, there are degrees of disobedience. You you weren't expressing your disobedience as bad as you possibly could have. And so there are different degrees here. People are different. And Gandhi once said, I'm impressed with the Christians' Christ. I'm very unimpressed with the Christians. Don't you find that to be true? Don't you understand? If you're a Christian, don't you understand that statement? Because aren't you rather unimpressed with Christians too? Aren't you rather unimpressed with yourself as a Christian? None of us is living as we ought to live. None of us is like what we want to be like. We want to be like Jesus. And we know we aren't. But I'm saying to you, we should never be surprised when some Christians aren't living like Jesus. No Christian is. And I want to say this, don't be surprised when some Christians are worse to your eyes than some non-Christians. Look, you can have a Christian who seems far less moral and far worse morally than the non-Christian who's lived an extremely moral life. Look, the non-Christian looks more like the Christian on the outside, we would say, than the Christian does. How, how is that possible? Because they started at different places. One had good parents and good schools and felt morally constrained by society to be a good person. And the other grew up in chaos and abandoned and abandoned themselves to all manner of passions and lusts and lived in it. So there's a difference, and the ultimate difference is on the inside. One is still dead in sin, and one God has made alive in Christ. And the moral one is still dead in sin and under God's wrath. Maybe precisely because they think they keep the law of God and do what is good. And they don't deserve to be judged, so they never ask to be forgiven. And yet they live well by societal standards. And the other, the Christian, may not be doing well at all. But isn't under God's wrath. Is actually, he says, alive, raised, and seated with Christ in heavenly places. And that will bear fruit out over time. But we start in different places. And that's why sometimes the moral non-Christian seems so much better than the, the previously immoral Christian who's only just come alive. And only barely growing into what God is making them to be. This is so helpful for you to understand, friends. You don't live the Christian life in order to get life in Christ. Though everything in your 
Continued fallenness says it's the other way around. I've got to work it out to gain life. You have life, Paul says here. So that when he gets to chapter 4, he can turn right around and say, now I want you to live it out, and here's what it looks like. I want to urge you, chapter 4, verse 1, I want to urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. You see what Paul is doing? He's, he's saying, but dear Christian friend, will you remember, you are already in Christ. That's why the Bible will say elsewhere, we love We love him because he first loved us. We don't love him in order to get him to love us. And so uh, the Apostle Paul, I think, here is teaching us that we do not live for God until we get life from God. We can't live for God until we get new life from God. And he says to everyone who believes, old, young, male, female, even the tiniest child who believes in Jesus is alive in Jesus and can begin to live for God. That's the first thing. The second lesson I want you to see is this in verses 5 and 6. It's this, that what is said of the Redeemer is said also of the redeemed. God hasn't simply by grace made you alive, but, but he has united you to Jesus in all his finished work. And whatever is said of Jesus is also spoken of, of you. It's an amazing thing. It's actually a hard concept to understand and to continue to believe and to have any idea how this works itself out. But it's, um, in many ways, the high, the high point of Paul's theology. Over 164 times in the New Testament letters in which Paul writes, he will say things like, you are in him, or you are in Christ. It's his favorite expression. Union with Christ. And here... In Ephesians 2, he's actually coined three new words to explain to you what God has done. I was thinking that this was like when former President Bush kept saying nuclear instead of nuclear. Except that I don't think the dictionaries have accepted that as a genuine word. So we can't actually say he coined a new word. Or like last week when I tried to say archer. And I was grasping at it. It wasn't in the notes. And I said, archist, right? I was making up words up here, which none of you will take on uh, because you're not in mental distress, I understand. Paul here actually makes up three new words. And he does it because no ordinary word was adequate to explain what God had done for you. And, And the three words he makes up in your English translation probably read like this. One word made alive together with. One word, raised up together with. One word, made to sit together with. In other words, he's he's taken these these three words and he's, he's added a prefix to it that means together with. And he said basically that what's true of Jesus is true of you. In other words, he highlights three momentous events in the life of Jesus. His resurrection from the dead, his ascension into heaven, and his being seated at the right hand of God on the throne of the universe. And he says, now dear Christian friends, what happened to Jesus 
has happened to you. You have been raised up. You have been united, made alive together with Christ, raised with Christ. You have been raised up with him, ascended into heaven with him. And you have together with him been seated with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You are in union with him in his finished work. And God, God didn't do this in half steps, friends. It's all yours. All of the work of Christ is all yours. You know that, that puzzle out there about how, how can you go from here to there if you go halfway each time? If you go from, to go from, from here to there, and, I, and if I go halfway the first time, and I go halfway the second time, and halfway the third time, and half again, and half again, and half again. If I keep going, and if I could do it, an infinite number of halves, I never actually get to the point. It's kind of a bit of a puzzle, because we all know you easily can step over the line and cross over. It's just a play on words, I think. I don't even have it all figured out. But, but you understand that God doesn't save in half measures. He doesn't give you part of it. He gives it all to you, all at once, in principle. Now, I realize you and I, you're sitting here and you're saying, Ted, I'm seated in Fellowship Bible Church building, you know, at 504 East Twin Springs Road. I'm not seated in heavenly places at the right hand of God. And the Bible would say to you, you are in your Redeemer, united and bound to your Redeemer. That is where you are with Christ. And I know it doesn't feel like it. I know it doesn't look like it. I know you don't haven't fully realized the implications of it. It hasn't been displayed publicly in glory yet. But it is no less true of you that you've been raised, ascended, and seated. The, the Bible illustrates this in a variety of ways. Jesus is the vine and we are the branches. We are, we are united to him and bear fruit from him. It, it illustrates this this way. Jesus is the head and we are the body, and we are bound to him. Jesus is the husband, and we are the bride, and he has united himself to us. Why is Paul, why is Paul saying all this? That's the question. Why, why, go, why go into all this? I think, uh, in part, he's building your confidence, and building your confidence with humility for what he calls you to in chapters 4, 5, and 6. Look, there are so many things that can make you feel like you are at the bottom of the pile in this life. Things in life that wear you down, people that put you down, the world lets you down. How how do you deal with being in a dead-end job and continue to do your work as unto the Lord? How do you suffer through the incompetence of others when you're under them and they are master over you, so to speak, or employer? How do you live through a failing body and a failing mind? How do you retire in the midst of a financial crisis and not despair in the pinch? How do you do any of this without throwing in the towel, giving up in despair and saying it's not worth it? Well, you remember, the Apostle Paul says, you remember this world is not your home and that you are not ultimately under the pile. You are raised and seated with Christ. You are bound to him who rules over all things. And as he promised in the book of Revelation, you will co-reign with him and co-rule with him over all things. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians says, don't you know that the saints will judge the angels? 
Why will they do that? Because you will be exalted above all the created things and be seated with Christ. And co-rule and co-reign. That is who you are in Jesus. That's what's been given you in Jesus. You know the story of the ugly duckling, however? Christians are a lot like the ugly duckling. This self-conscious little duckling, he's mixing it up with other birds, and he's feeling sorry for himself because of his feathers. They're all stubby and brown. And he was despised by the fellow birds, and he felt like a failure, especially when he saw their comparative beauty. And then one day, the ugly duckling looked down into the water, and he saw something absolutely marvelous. He, had no, he no longer had brown, ugly feathers, but was arrayed in the beautiful white feathers of a swan. And he went off shouting, I'm a swan! I'm a swan! He thought he was an ugly duckling, but he was really a swan. Now here's the thing, the real difference for him came when he saw what he really was. The true recognition of his real identity was the beginning of a new joy. And the great mistake we make is to look only at our sin and only at our failure and then give up a little bit despairingly and say, what can I do? I'm such an ugly duckling Christian. And our need, friends, is not to do. It is, first of all, to understand what God has done. What God has made you to be in Jesus. You're not an ugly duckling Christian. You're a child of the king. Destined publicly to rule and reign. That's what you are. So the Apostle Paul says to the Ephesian Christians, Listen, dear friends, don't define your life by what you've gone through. No matter how problematic and traumatic it was, don't, don't let that define you. Don't define your life by, by the hard and the bitter and the painful. Define your life by the three biggest events in the life of Jesus after his death. His resurrection, ascension, and being seated at the right hand of God. Because those three things are yours in him. And so it gives you a confidence And a confidence about your future. But it does so with humility. I am not saying. The Apostle Paul here is telling you to be. You know like the me monster. In Brian Regan's skit. You know I walked on the moon. Some of you have seen this hilarious comedy bit. It's also very clean. This particular portion in which he. He describes a dinner party in which he's talking to the person who's the me monster. Me, 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 I, 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 I do this, I do that, I did this, I did that. And you can just never top this person. And he says, wouldn't, I mean, you don't have a story that's greater. Wouldn't you like to be Neil Armstrong at that dinner party? And after this guy goes on for 10 minutes, you just, you just kind of casually look up and say, I walked on the moon. You know, it shuts down all conversation. The Apostle Paul is not saying that's what this produces in us. Sort of the the arrogant attitude, well, look who I am now. I don't know about all the rest of you. That is not the attitude. Why? Because how did you get this? You weren't Neil Armstrong, the astronaut. You, You weren't the elite of the elite chosen for this wonderful mission. You got it when you were dead and under wrath. And you got it by grace, by the work of Jesus for you. You don't deserve this. You didn't put yourself there. It's all by Jesus. And so we see this second lesson 
friends, that what he says of the Redeemer, he also says of the redeemed. But the last thing is, is very quickly, why, why did God do this? Why? What was his goal? It was to make you a trophy of his grace and to display his grace in your life. Look at verse 7. So that, by grace you've been saved, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. He's saying this, you know, a, a patient after a major operation, is a living testimony to the the surgeon's skill. Puts on display, as it were, the skill of the surgeon. A priceless artwork testifies to an artist's skill. How will the universe know the character of our God, the generosity of our God? How will the universe know that God is gracious to the undeserving? You. You will be the trophy of his grace. This is not that day of that finished product, but there is a day coming. The coming ages, he says, will show and put it on display. As one person said it, you've probably heard, you know, now we're in the workshop. Heaven will be the showroom. And that's what you're bound for. Can you do anything less, friends, than fall on your face in praise, in thankfulness, in gratitude because of this astonishing grace? Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we bless you and we thank you. We pray that you would seal this word to our hearts. You would confirm and assure us in the grace of Christ, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me invite you to stand and we'll sing in response to the Lord's word.